Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. On today's episode of Conversations from Here, we do a little bit of a twist. We flip the script, and one of my guests, Jennifer Jo Oberly, whom you know from episode 24. Jen, of course, as you know, is a singer, songwriter, musician, fantastic human being, did me the honor of interviewing me. She wanted to hear my story. So I hope that you guys enjoy. We talk about all kinds of stuff and go to all kinds of places. And we talk a lot about well-being, wellness, health, meditation, yoga, qigong, all that kind of thing. So I hope you enjoy. I hope you are inspired. And here we go. Here is Jen and me. So here we go. Hello there, Jen Oberly, my dear Hello friend. There. So, so for folks who are listening today, um, it's a little bit different because um, I am not going to be in the driver's seat. I have to, I, I'm relinquishing control <laughs> if I can <laughs> and, and handing the reins over to you because you so kindly said that you, you wanted to hear my story. So absolutely. I am I'm so inspired by you for so many reasons and you seem to just have this incredible energy and presence about you and I am very intrigued I want to know more about you Dana Ziegler <laughs> thank you thank you I hope I don't disappoint I hope it's not it's oh no you, you haven't already already I'm just like <laughs> amazed astonished and amazed <laughs> thank you thank you thank you no seriously though um I, I am definitely inspired by your journey and i'm looking forward to this conversation great um yeah especially uh like i just uh we talked about just recently uh your instagram posts from a couple of years ago i sense that you were uh transition transitioning into a more vulnerable state using social media Mm -hmm. So uh, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, well, at the time, uh, my job ended 
and I was in the midst of kind of reformulating, remaking, recalibrating, and all that stuff. And um, I, I have, uh, I've been a teacher in various capacities through the years. Um, I've taught Taoist Qigong and meditation for years prior when I was in San Francisco, and I, I, I'm a certified yoga teacher, and I've sort of taught that, and I've taught meditation in, in um, briefly in, in rehab facilities. And, um, and, and I have this kind of unusual, multifaceted sort of health and wellness background. And so at the time, I thought, you know what, I really want to do what I want to do instead of what I think that I have to do or should do. And so it was then that I started to um, kind of use social media as a platform for just sort of doing some teaching here or there without being like, you know, professorial or anything, but just kind of giving, giving little insights here and there. I've done less of it now. I'm um, kind of, again, I'm shifting gears again, but yeah, that's, that's what you saw, Jen. <laughs> you saw a person in flux. <laughs> And that caught my interest right away. <laughs> Maybe because I could identify with that so well. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you become this multifaceted human? You know, where did Dana Ziegler get this inspiration from? Um, um, I, I heard you, you told me that you were born in the Midwest. Yeah, I was born uh, outside of Detroit in Rochester, Michigan, which incidentally, I have to say, this is very funny. It is the same town where Madonna was born and the same town where the Queen of Burlesque, Dita Fontes, aka Heather Sweet, was born also. So I don't know what that says, what's in the water in Rochester. Yeah, but <laughs> I was about to say, there must be something in the water. <laughs> and then, um, but when I was six months old, we moved to Minnesota. We moved to, uh, on the shores of Lake Minnetonka. And so mm -hmm. for like the first five years of life, I was surrounded by autumn leaves and snow banks. That's kind of like what I think of when I think of Minnesota, you know? Mm -hmm. And then we moved to, to Arizona uh, when I was six and, um, and I, I was really disappointed because I thought we were going to be living with Native Americans, you know, because as a Midwestern child, that when you think Arizona American West, you think you're going to go live with the Navajo and live in the Hogan and have and have horses. I mean, that's what was in my head. But then, of course, it's suburbia. you know, So it's Phoenix, you know, not too exciting, but um, but one of the things, I mean, I've always been kind of performance oriented and like interested in movement and voice and stuff like that. And was always like a sickly kid. And then I started dancing when I was 13, just kind of late. But that was like, and like suddenly um, I became more coordinated, <laughs> started to have friends. <laughs> Who inspired you to dance? You know, it's really funny. You're going to laugh, uh, or maybe you won't, but uh, when I saw Flashdance. Uh, you know what? That is totally legit. It's totally legitimate. I was thinking, I was thinking more like Jenna Jackson. No, it was, it was actually, I mean, I, I was always, you know, I always loved dance, but then I saw that film and, and I think what got me was um, I was of course disappointed to hear that that Jennifer Beals did very little of the actual dancing. <laughs> that was actually her double, um, Maureen Jahan. But uh, 
but uh, there was something about the fact that here is this person who is a welder and she's mm -hmm. in this situation and she has this totally different side of herself and she, that, you know, she wants to express herself in a different way. And I thought, wow, that's just cool. And I'm, I think the leg warmers and the off the shoulder sweatshirt probably helped. <laughs> yeah, <maybe. laughs> and Michael Nuri was in it and they had a great mm -hmm. dog, you know, but, uh, but I think that was, and I think there were a lot of little girls at that time who, when they saw Flashdance, they took a, they took, they went and they took a jazz class, which is what I did. I took jazz and it had a ballet bass. So my teacher, Noelle Eirich of the Scottsdale School of Dance, she was a former ballerina. And uh, so she gave us a ballet bass and then we got into the, uh, to jazz. So of course it was all about Bob Fosse you know, yes. the isolation, the jazz mm -hmm. hands and all that stuff. And, um, but that was the beginning of the dance thing. And I continued it through, um, I did a bit in high school and then in college, it was great because you get to the university level, which was, this was at Arizona State University, which is in Tempe, Arizona. And they have an excellent dance department, actually, an, mm -hmm. uh, an internationally renowned dance department. And uh, one of the people I studied with was Marion Jones, who was the member of the, of the original Martha Graham company. Wow. And she taught improv dance. And uh, so I really, I really loved dance. I really, I didn't have the, like the, the, the skill nor the stamina to become a dancer, so to speak. But I think it was really always in my heart. And I was identified with dancers. And um, so I became the house manager for the ASU dance department for uh, a year, which was great. And it was like international people coming to uh, to perform and whatnot. And also the American College Dance, was it American College Dance Festival, I think it was called. And that would show up in different universities around the country. And the year that I was the house manager for ASU dance, that American College Dance Festival came to ASU. And it was everybody who was everybody, especially in contemporary dance. So people like, um, you know, Merce Cunningham and his company and very, so it was professional companies as well as, um, as well as, you know, colleges, different colleges would bring their dance. Wow. So how old were you during this time? I was 21, 21, 22 maybe 22, yeah, formative years. Mm. And, um, and during this time I was having some health issues, you know, so I, I kinda, um, I, I, I wasn't, I, again, I wasn't a dancer, I was a dancer with capital D. So, um, but then, uh, but yeah, so that was, that was that. And then, and actually later um, when I was 25, I, I moved to San Francisco, well, oh, I actually, I should stop because I have to talk about Cyprus. <laughs> wow. Okay. Cyprus in the middle of Arizona. Yes. Well, so, so after, after school, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, when you're in Tempe, Arizona, you're a young person, you're in a place that's not really hugely interesting. It's Arizona. You know, I'd lived there for 19 years and thought I want something different. So I was kind of casting around for different places to go. 
and you were sick during this time too, right? Yeah. Diagnosed with something. I was well, and we're we'll come to that because that was a little bit later. But um, oh, okay. But I went to, but so my one of my college professors, Dr. Nancy Serwent, the art history department. I was an art history major mm-hmm. in the art department at ASU. Every year, she would take a few students or former students with her to Cyprus, which is the easternmost island in the Mediterranean. So Turkey's to the north, and then uh, Syria and Lebanon are to the east, and then um, and then uh, whatever's whatever's to the south. Uh, but anyway, it's remote. It's, it's a place that most Americans have no idea where it is. And there's a lot of British tourists and a lot of European tourists who go there. Um, and half the island is Turkish, the north, and, and then the lower half is Greek, and I was on the Greek side. And um, so it was, it was the most extraordinary thing. I was the dig registrar, which means that I didn't have to have a special skill set, but I could just go and work for them and, and, and put find numbers in indelible ink on these little tiny finds oh. from 5th century BC, um, the dig that they were working on at the time. And How did it, you get a gig like that? Well, that through, my, through my former professor, uh, Nancy, she asked me to go. And, uh, and it was oh. phenomenal. It was two and a half months. Yeah, two, two months or two and a half months of, uh, of Cyprus. And then, mm. um, and then I went back through, um, through London, which I knew before from a previous trip and spent some time there and then came back to Arizona. And then it was, well, now what, you know? So, so you, you, how long were you in London for? Oh, just like I was, I just decompressed just for like, you know, a week or so before coming home. Cause you kind of have to, I mean, after this epic experience of, yeah. of uh, being on a Mediterranean Island, you know, in a totally different world yeah. to transitioning back home, it was necessary. <laughs> and then, um, and then came back to Arizona and I was trying to figure out where I was going to go next. And one of my best friends, um, he was going to San Francisco and he had just come out and he felt that it was his calling to go to San Francisco. So he moved there and then invited me to spend the Christmas of 94 with him and his roommate. So I spent the Christmas of 94 in a house of gay men in San Francisco in Noe Valley. Fun. Decided that I was going to move to San Francisco. So I did that in, um, in, in uh, 95, February 95. And then I was having health issues, as you mentioned, still they were getting worse. I had like swollen fingers in one hand and like fatigue and bone pain and all this weird stuff. And then I went to a rheumatologist and um, had been to some other people too, but I went to a rheumatologist and she said, um, I think you have systemic lupus Wow. from your blood panel and symptoms that you're having. And, and I was like, what, you know, it's, it, it's kind of, surprising and shocking at the same time there is there was a comfort of having a diagnosis like all of these weird things all these non-specific symptoms i was having for so long finally had a name so you know so this person who had been driven to maybe go to graduate school become an architect or become a an art history professor or do or you know do any number of things suddenly was faced with, I'm 25 years old and I have this diagnosis and what does this mean? And 
you know, obviously I can't live like a normal person, I, you know, like having a full-time thing is not going to really be doable for me. So I got to find a way, you know, and then, um, I went, I started going to Feldenkrais classes and Tai Chi classes with this wonderful teacher, Alice Bridges. Hello, Alice, if you're listening, um, in San Francisco. And she helped me to kind of start on a path of healing and movement. So we did Tai Chi Chuan and we also did Feldenkrais. I don't know if, are you familiar with Feldenkrais? No, no, but uh, I'm intrigued once again. <laughs> it's, so it's a movement practice that essentially looks to find the path of least resistance and movement. Mm -hmm. And a lot of musicians and performers take Feldenkrais classes, um, like for stage movement and stuff. And musicians particularly, because as you know, musicians are vulnerable to uh, repetitive stress injuries, yes, repetitive absolutely. motion injuries. So Feldenkrais is one of those modalities that is often sought out. Well, I'm going to seek it out for sure right after. <laughs> Feldenkrais. Okay. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and so then, it's so strange to be revisiting all these things. This is this is amazing. Um, I'm loving it. I hope it's interesting to people. Uh, and then, so my mindset started to shift from having this vision of being, you know, being a successful person and blah 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 blah. And everything that I thought I knew about what I wanted suddenly just like completely shifted. And I had to focus on health and wellness for me because I knew if I didn't do that, um, I wasn't gonna get any better. And I didn't wanna be a sick person. You know, I didn't wanna be somebody who needed special care or special treatment or anything like that. Um, so in 19, oh, so, okay. Around this time I was taking acting classes and voice classes in San Francisco. And uh, I met, so one friend in acting class knew about my recent diagnosis and said, you know, I train with this really far out Taoist guy who he, he, he does martial arts with us, but he also does a Qigong class. And I think you might, you might love it. So can we re rewind a little bit? How did you get into acting? Well, <laughs> It was always a thing like I, I did it. Uh, I, I did a little bit in um, when I was a kid, I, I did like children's theater and stuff like that. So that was I forgot about that <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I always had I always had a performance thing in me. So yeah, it was so creative. That's it wonderful. was, it was something it was I was a I was able to do it. I had the opportunity um, my parents were helping me out a bit at this time. And, uh, and I met this incredible teacher at Mark Monroe Studios in San Francisco. It's no longer there, but my teacher was Linda Lowry. And she, she was a colleague of F. Murray Abraham and Geraldine Page at the, I think it was- Brooklyn um, College? What's that? Uh, Brooklyn College. I think it was actually, it was a, a theater. I think it was the Circle in the Square Theater in New York. Oh, okay. Where they were. And um, so she was a member of that company. I hope I'm getting the name right. And, um, and so she was this amazing New York acting teacher mm -hmm. who taught in San Francisco. 
And so I trained with her for like two, two and a half, three years, something like that, doing improv and doing scene study and monologues and whatnot. And I use it all the time. I mean, really, it's about being present and showing up and being truthful. And that's and 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 whenever somebody in the class would um, would you know be particularly present and truthful and compelling in a, in a performance, she would always say, "That's the work." It was always that's the well, work. There's so much beauty in surrender. Absolutely. And and so much you know I, I know for me that you know when I'm able to. Uh, give myself permission to be that honest. It's almost like a huge weight has been lifted, but it's always a conflict. There's always like this one conflict, like, okay, you know, am I ready to be that vulnerable? You know, this is, this goes back to how I, you know, I was so intrigued by you in the Instagram, you know, you know, am I willing to be that vulnerable in this situation? Mm -hmm. And can I still, have my boundaries while in that vulnerable state. Right. And that like, it, it's interesting is if, if you think about if you think about particular performances that you've witnessed, whether in film or on stage, mm -hmm. um, and you've been moved by that person. And you think, wow, you know, you, they really made you feel something. It was when they were vulnerable. It was never when they were acting with a capital A. It was always when they just dropped everything and you just, you know, you, your heart connects with that performance. Oh, yeah. And I, I miss that in performing. I mean, you know, doing, uh, being a hired gun as a performer, I don't get that opportunity as much. Mm -hmm. But when I've performed in the past, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. Yeah. Where, like, I wasn't doing any of the work. It was just the universe kind of channeling like yeah. I was channeling the universe and it was coming out of me yeah it's it's an incredible thing it, it really is and and um um that I mean that's kind of continued because I've also like subsequently um and we'll, we'll talk about this later probably mm -hmm. but I got into doing stand-up comedy for a brief period of time <laughs> because, yeah I know <laughs> well <laughs> Because being here in LA, so we'll go forward and then go back again. But uh, um, I, I kind of miss performing. And um, a friend of mine was doing uh, um, uh, doing open mics at there's ten bazillion places in LA that you can do that you can do open mics. Well, in normal times. Mm -hmm. And um, so I went with her to the Clown House, Adam Barnhart's The Clown House in downtown mm -hmm. LA. And I kind of met my people in a certain way. And um, I thought, what is the hardest thing that I can imagine doing, which is doing my own material in front of a bunch of strangers protected by nothing but a microphone. <laughs> Holy shit, Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and something happened the first time I went up and it just felt, I felt this like energy surging up like you were talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of like the universe is driving. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, I thought I've tapped into something here. You know, it doesn't mean that I need to be a comic, but clearly I need to do this right now. Mm -hmm. So Amazing. I, I did that. And then 
ended up going to the comedy store and meeting Brad and meeting right? Brad. <laughs> I was supporting friends in the belly room on a Sunday night show and I would be there like most Sundays and then he would be sheltering himself from the cold of the original room where he plays piano doing the interstitial music between comics and then we kept, we kept running into each other you know and then conversations ensued you know so you know my my weird kind of wild hair idea of doing comedy led me to this other place and to this person to whom I am now engaged and living with, with our cat. And uh, so strange how things, with it. but I wanted to challenge myself with comedy. That was a whole idea. It's like, wow, if I could even do this, if I could even, you know, make any kind of headway in this. And, um, and, and so um, that's just doing that. And, and, uh, and it made me braver for other things in life too, for sure. Because if you can do that, you can do anything. <laughs> wow. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that, I, I hear that's one of the toughest gigs. Oh yeah, and, and you know when it's not working. <laughs> It's like if when 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 everything stops and there's nothing coming back at you, it's like, oh boy, you know, and that and that is the fear. And that is there's a reason that they say that public speaking is is most people's number one fear mm -hmm. to be in front of people, speaking in front of people. Um, there's a reason. Uh, but what's interesting is that when you're able to surrender to that. And then because your brain will start to spin mm -hmm. in the silence, you're like, oh, oh God, can I remember the rest of my set? Oh, you know, and uh, sometimes it'll come back and sometimes it won't. Sometimes you'll recover, sometimes you won't. But, um, but I, I can say that I ended on a laugh in the belly room at the comedy store. <laughs> wow. So that, and I'm like, you know what? I'm good if I never do it again. And I did do some, some more a little bit here and there and Brad and I actually did some too at Flappers and Burbank subsequently. That was probably like, gosh, two years ago now, but you know, so there's always been kind of a sort of a touchstone and I'm still in touch with friends that I, that I did comedy with at the, at the, at the clown house and you know, know them from the comedy store as well and through Brad and whatnot. So that that part of, and, and the comedy world is kind of weird because it's one of those places, it's like the last bastion of, of, of being able to say exactly, like people say all kinds of things and, and you go, oh my God, you know? And it, it really is kind of the last sort of pure performance sort of thing in a certain way. And there's also a connection to the music community because interestingly, a lot of comics are also musicians. Mm -hmm. and vice versa so yeah. wow fascinating <laughs> so so what so how did you get connected with uh, social media so where where did that tie in with your comedy let's see well i mean i was i i think i started on facebook probably in like 2010 so at that point you know, I was all, I was all, all already, I was teaching. Yeah. So um, you were doing yoga, teaching meditation and, and you were working in the rehab, uh, 
Yeah, and that came later, actually, in 2000, like in the in the 2000s, I was still in San Francisco, and mm -hmm. um, and I was teaching, I was teaching Qigong, I had little, my little classes in Golden Gate Park, and, and I should mention my teacher, Steve Spano, who is one of the most, one of the most pivotal people in the course of my life, because he was somebody who helped set me on the healing path with Qigong, we're back to Qigong, mm. um, and I was there with a bunch of badass guys and a few women who were martial artists, and um, they were so loving and supportive and so welcoming. Um, I, I trained with them forever, um, and we were in various spaces. This was the Wu Wei School of Movement, and, um, and, and Steve is one of my best friends to this day. Um, and is always someone whom I touch base with and, um, and, and it's, but, it, but I learned so much from Qigong basically means, and in case anybody doesn't know, it means working with Qi, so working with your vital energy. And that can mean working, um, through movement very often in most cases, Qigong, um, Qigong is also something that is the foundation of, of any martial art because uh, without Qi, <laughs> you'd just be a you just be a rice bag on the floor there. <laughs> you, know, you wouldn't be animated, right? So it's how you move your energy, it's how you cultivate your energy. So um, so we would do um, Qigong various and sundry movement sets, and we'd also do standing meditation, and it would involve um, uh, breathing, of course, just like in yoga, because without without breath, there's no chi, you know, there's no prana moving. Mm -hmm. So cultivating that and being able to um, use it primarily for me, I was using it for stress reduction mm -hmm. because I'm I'm an anxious bunny. I'm kind of like, you know, I, I, get, I get anxious about things. Wow. And um, I wouldn't have guessed that with you. Oh God, it, what's so funny is that a lot of times the calmest seeming people are the people who are inside quaking, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, the nervous bunny that I am, I needed to have something to just calm me the fuck down. So right. <laughs> something that would help me to breathe and center myself. And also because lupus is an autoimmune illness, like so many of them, um, your stress level directly affects uh, your symptoms, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. as stress does with any kind of medical condition, right. whether it's autoimmune or not, I mean, even if you're recovering from a car accident, you, mm -hmm. you know, your body has to be able to rest and to heal and to restore itself. So the it's Qigong- It's amazing how much people take advantage you know, and they don't realize the damage that they're causing their bodies because of, you know, just the hustle and bustle of life, you know, and I, I'm feeling it now, you know, in my, my late 40s that like, you know, what my mind wants my body to do, my body is telling, is resisting now. Yeah. And, yep. you know, there's a need to, to um, find balance within the body and mind more and more as I get older. So yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. And uh, you know, I, I would love to, you know, take a lesson from you or, or you know, 
10 lessons. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and one of the things that's so important, and this is something else that, you know, you learn in yoga practice and meditation practice is that um, there's such a powerful mind-body connection. They are inexorably linked. You cannot separate the mind from the body. I mean, you even think about what your response is when you get nervous, like you have a job interview the next day. It's like, you know, you feel your heart rate come up. You feel your tummy flutter a little bit. You know, you got some nervous energy and that is all created by a thought. So if your mind and your thought can create that kind of a pretty profound phys physiological reaction, then you can go the other way. And when you, when you quiet your mind, you're never going to stop your thoughts because your brain is a thought factory. But if you can allow the thoughts to pass through like clouds across a blue sky and not attach to them and, and just be like, oh, you know, just abide. Let it go. <laughs> abide. Yes. I don't have to think about what I'm going to make for dinner tonight. I don't have to worry about that phone call I have to make tomorrow because right now, I'm sitting on a cushion and I'm comfy and I have everything I need. Mm -hmm. So having that in one's back pocket, the skill to be able to be quiet mm -hmm. is very powerful because I, I think a lot of people have kind of a, they misconstrue what meditation means. They think that you have to be a yogi sitting on a mountaintop. To meditate right but in actual fact it's there are many different forms of med of meditation and i always would tell my students that if you do five minutes a day which sounds like nothing and it is nothing and if you really look at how you spend your time every day you'll see that you have at least five minutes mm -hmm. you'll notice that that five minutes of peaceful abiding directly impacts how the rest of your day goes it's it's remarkable and so small introducing very small things over time consistently makes all the difference in the world so because a lot of times people think well do i have to sit for an hour in lotus position like no of course not no you can sit for 10 minutes on a cushion, you can sit in a chair, you can lay down if you need to, you know, whatever it is, but being fully present in a calm and relaxed open state facilitates healing. Yeah, and, and that's something that's very difficult for, for people to uh, grasp mm. when they when they have to control so much and, and we, cram our day with so many activities that we're not necessarily present for any of them. Like while we're doing one thing, we're constantly thinking about the next. Right. And, you know, you know, now that I have this job at a, a rehab, you know, I, I deal with clients that are talking about, oh, I need to do this. I need to do that. I was like, do you really need to do this? You know, oh, uh, so then why are you here you know and and you know just going through the the conversation you know it gets it gets really tangled up very quickly you know and and just to have that moment of pause from everything 
makes such a world of difference. It does, and for a lot of people, um, addicts especially, in my experience of working with them, mm -hmm. um, quiet can be a scary place to be. Absolutely. Because many people who have addiction issues, many of them are, are traumatized. From yeah, they're running their from their thoughts. They're running from their thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and this is something that some of my students had mentioned to me, I'm afraid that if I sit still, some bad stuff is going to come up and I'm not going to know how to deal with it. Right? Right. And so I would always tell them that nothing can harm you. You are in a completely safe place. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that your mind, that your mind can do that can hurt you. And so being able to, and remember, I said, go back to the breath, always go back to the breath. If you get scared, calm your breath and focus on the belly. And that is going to anchor you to being in the now. So over time, some of them, not all, but some of them were able to, okay, I can, I can, I can breathe. I can remember to breathe. And I can, I can calm down and I can be in this place of stillness and safety and nothing bad's going to happen. And oh, by the way, I'm starting to enjoy not having to do anything, not having to think that I can rest here. Because I, 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 I said, you know, trust me, everything that you're concerned about in life, it, it'll wait. <laughs> it'll wait. What's, what's going to happen between now and 30 minutes from now? Probably nothing. So may as well, while you're here, take advantage of this time to just like, let it go, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, like this is the only day off I have for the next week. And, you know, this is a perfect example of what you're saying. You know, I, I have so many things to do mm -hmm. and I have to prioritize and put self-care in between. So I don't, you know, uh, so I don't exhaust myself. Right. For, for no reason. You know, and, and, you know, just prioritizing the, the wants from the needs is so important. It is. And, and also, too, I think a lot of people, especially women, not exclusively, but especially, um, tend to prioritize other people or other things before themselves. Absolutely. Very often. And part of that is kind of societal, I think. Or we, or or maybe it's just that we feel that we're expected to. But really, when you're able to uh, take care of yourself, that's all right. I hear the DVD. Um, when you're able to take care of yourself and do what you need to do, you're actually more present, more restored, so that you can do all of the other things that are required of you or the things that you choose to do or to be there for others. But first and foremost, you do have to take care of yourself because if the well runs dry, there's nothing left. So boundaries and self-care are so important. And there's a, there's a word that when I turned 40, there's a little word that I learned how to use to great effect, it's no. <laughs> and because, you know, 
the tendency, yes, and it's a very, it's a tiny word and it's a really powerful word. And it doesn't mean that you're limiting yourself or limiting your experience. It means that you are being discerning about where you spend your time and your energy. I so love that. You, so then you never feel resentful about, well, this person, you know, I felt overwhelmed because then I had to go here and I had to go here and blah, 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 blah. You don't ever go to that place because you think, yeah, you know, I don't really have time this week and I really want to give it, if I do this, I really want to give it my full attention. So no, I'm sorry, I can't do that this week. Wow, you know? we could talk about this for hours. <laughs> I'm so fascinated about this part of your life in particular. Um, no, I'm telling you it's, but what's interesting is that very often it takes people, anybody really takes, takes us, uh, the, you know, the old saying that youth is wasted on the young. Yes. Um, there are so many things that don't you wish we knew back in our thirties or back in our twenties. I mean, your twenties are kind of forgivable because you're still, you're still trying to figure out who you are and what you're gonna do and everything. You're kind of like a little puppy, you know, so you're trying to figure it out. But then when you get into your thirties, I think the thirties are kind of tough mm -hmm. because that's like the onset of real adulthood and real responsibility. And you're navigating these different channels and you're, you know, many people get married or have children in their thirties. It's a, it's a lot of upheaval. There's a lot of major shifts that happen. And then something happens and you get into your forties and you realize, I gotta take that matters. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, and, and none of, and, and the small stuff doesn't mean shit. Mm -hmm. And I really want to focus on my priorities. And now I know what my priorities are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love this age act, actually, um, because of the, the freedom that I have from my past, you know? Absolutely. Um, and there's and also, there's so like, there's kind of a, you know, um, there's a freedom because you're not grasping for anything. Mm -hmm. There's a liberation, you reach a certain age and you're like, you know, I, I really don't care about, you know, being the prettiest woman in the room or something or being the smartest or the best or the whatever. It's like, I'm me and that's enough. And I can be the best me out there and that's fine with me. I'm good with it. I love that. <laughs> um, just to, to get back on point with your journey here. So we're going to possibly bookend this. So how did you get to be inspired to create this podcast, which is so wonderful, by the way. And, and thank you for including me uh, on your list of people to have conversations with. You, you have one of my star guests. Yeah. You have such a, an eloquent way of, of speaking and, and making people feel safe. So it's no wonder that, you know, you have this in your background of, of you know, spiritual um, growth and, um, all of your martial arts and, and yoga and movement, uh, it's all, it all works together. Well, to wonderful Dana. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, well, how the podcast came about is, as you know, from this conversation that 
I, I've always been performance oriented and I really love talking as if you couldn't tell. <laughs> and, and when we had the initial shutdowns last year um, with the COVID thing and a lot of people were working from home, I was jobless uh, and I was trying to figure out what my next move was. And, and so I thought, you know, Two of my great heroes of all time are Terry Gross, who does the show Fresh Air on NPR, WHYY in Philadelphia. Okay. <laughs> and Dick Cavett, who would interview all kinds of luminaries on live television. This was in the probably, I want to say like 67 to like yeah. 75, somewhere around yeah. there. And he would talk to everybody from Muhammad Ali to to Richard Burton to Catherine Hepburn to, to John Lennon to John Lennon John and Yoko and yes. and uh, and 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 George Harrison and um, who he said was the hardest person to talk to interestingly um, but these the, and these were organic rich interesting entertaining conversations and I thought well there's a lot of people who are home right now and missing connection with people. And there's so much kind of sensationalist garbage going on, zooming around everywhere in the, in the social media sphere, as well as the media. And I thought, what about bringing us back to old fashioned conversations that are unedited, that are just really about, I wanna talk, I wanna learn, how somebody got from their origin, their 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 origins, to doing what they love. How did they get there? And mm -hmm. I'm curious because I'm still working on that. And so that's where they came from. And then the name Conversations from Here came out of well, this is where we are in this moment right now. Talking, we're not going to edit. And I was a little hesitant about the technical aspects and whatnot. And our mutual friend, Sky Nicholas, the great Sky Nicholas, Wonderful. who was my first guest, episode one, she said, don't worry about what it sounds like. It doesn't have to be perfect. Create content, make something. Just put it out there, you never know, right? Yeah. So, being able to be free and having the support of my dear friend who is fearless in all ways, as you know, as a performer, as a mm -hmm. singer, you know, and as a teacher, by the way, she's another one. She's in this with us. She's in the healing. It's so inspiring. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so that's where it started in August of last year. And the other part that made me feel kind of especially brave about starting a new venture was last year my mom's health issues became critical and she was living up in bellevue washington near my brother who also lives up there my older brother eric and um and he called me and he said i she's home from rehab and she can't walk and i don't know what to do so we uh not to tell the entire story, but she got to the point where she realized that she was never really gonna get any better and that she decided to die. She wanted to go home and she wanted to be with us and, uh, and go through that process of hospice. And so that's what we did. 
and that was in June of 2020. And I'll tell you, it was the most, um, I had been with a dear friend in hospice years before in 2012, my friend Bruce, when he died and I was with him. Um, and so I had seen it before and I thought I can handle this because I've been there, <laughs> right? And um, it's different when it's your mom, Oh, for that? sure. Um, and it was the, it was the hardest thing. I mean, thank God for my brother because I was staying in her apartment and he would come and he would work, he was working remotely. So he would come and then he would be there for like eight hours during the day. And he was my relief, you know, and, um, just to have his presence there was wonderful. And so the two of us, um, were able to really connect over this and and we were spending more time together than we ever had since childhood actually we talked about this he and i and we walked our mom to the gate and it was the most unbelievable experience um and i and i feel really really lucky that i was able to do that to be there for that month yeah it must have been so powerful and how, how grateful you must have been to, to have her with you. There's so many people who've perished this past year and yeah. they weren't able to physically even be there for their loved ones. Right. And she was actually in the skilled nursing facility where COVID started in this country. Life Care Kirkland in, mm -hmm. in, uh, and, and, and uh, they, they were hit with it first. And so she was there, tested positive, did not become symptomatic by some miracle, wow. survived at age 86, survived being there for three months, got out, thank God, in one piece, and then had some other health things that were not resolving and then you know went home to die. But the fact that she saw firsthand that the, the COVID thing hit and happened, and there were 30, I believe 38 people out of 108 residents there died. Oh my it was a huge number of people, you know? So that so we had a front row seat to what was happening. Wow, what, what a powerful transition that must have been for all of you, you know, having that time to be with your brother and to, to bond in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and my mom was somebody who I talked to her probably about every day to every other day, we'd always check in. Mm -hmm. And she was always my biggest cheering squad, oh. you know, and, uh, and she did tell me, she said, you know, when I'm on the other side, you may not be able to hear me, but you can still talk to me. So wow. I remember that. So, you know, uh, so I, I, I talked to my mom. <laughs> so these conversations are, are, are actually conversations to share with your mom. In a way, yeah. Yeah, because she'd, she'd be loving this. <laughs> if she were around, she'd be listening to every single episode for sure. Well, yeah, I'm sure she is. I'm sure she's listening. So, wow, that was yeah. beautiful. 
so then so then here we are up to the modern time and things that you know the current time and things are starting to open a little bit and um and i really thought about again one of those times of like okay what do i want to be doing when things open up and all that stuff and so i'm doing a health coach certification course and um which is really in line with everything else you know that i've been doing it's kind of like coming full circle Mm-hmm. And you know how um, credentials and certifications and whatever, they, they matter in the sense of people's perception of you. So you might have like a whole ton of knowledge, but if you don't have an officialness, then they don't really, they're not really sure how to categorize you, you know? So I thought it would be good for that. Yes, you know? absolutely. You know, plus, uh, plus just the methodologies, because we learn about different methods and, uh, and processes and um, learn all the you know, theories and methodologies, I would say, and then how to implement them. So being a health coach is not about telling people what to do, but it's helping them to discover with your guidance, helping to uncover how it is that they first of all, what they want to change and how they want to change. Mm. So it's kind of like being a, 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 essentially a midwife to that client's process for behavior change. Will you be my life coach? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You're fascinating. I, you. Are you I mean, I just, I just hear everything you're saying. I'm like, yes, I want to be her. I, that's what I want to be. You know, it's funny, like, you know, as I I get older, and I I think about my path and my journey, and how, you know, everything I've done in the past led me to here. And and now I'm, I'm going into uh, healthcare, I'm, 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 you know, working in recovery and treatment. And I'm actually getting my certification uh, for Rad T. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it is all about healing and spiritual healing and, 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 and how that is so important with the physical healing. It's, it's, it's just, it's the yin, yin and yang, you know? Yeah. So. And can I just say that in terms of inspiring, you know, of course you and I met at the kibitz room mm-hmm. and um, through Brad, of course, yeah. wonderful Brad Watson. Awesome. Yeah. And, um, and, the thing that always that always amazed me, like when I first met you, I was like, wow, you know, because you are one of those people. So I'm gonna I'm gonna like throw some some pixie dust on you right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you're one of those people who turns up and is such a pro. There is something about you that I'm like, I have no like the professional is here <laughs> in the room. <laughs> and you go up there and you know, and and Dan hands you the bass or you bring your own and there you are and that voice of yours and I'm like damn you know because the 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 performer in me admires that so much that level of professionalism like I wish I could sing like that you know and uh I've done a little bit of singing but I can't sing like Jan Oberly. (laughs) trade maybe we could you know do an even trade here I could teach you some bass and some vocals and you can teach me how to live. <laughs> there you go. Vocals. That's my thing. I know I'm like, I'm not a musical person in that way, but I'm, but I, I'm, I'm plugged in this way with the voice. 
for for sure that's kind of my i think that's another one of my areas and and you know all that acting training and voice training you know where i'm using it most is here on the podcast <laughs> it makes a lot of sense yeah absolutely yeah it, um yeah, I, I feel like for me, I have this really thick Brooklyn accent that for many years I've been trying to mask because, you know, I just I just never really want the conversation to go there. Um, and also, yeah, and, and then, you know, it usually comes up when I'm either tired or moody or I'm talking about my past. That's when... I heard it when you were on the show just a couple of episodes ago, and I said, you can take the girl out of Brooklyn, you can't take Brooklyn out of the girl. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it, you know, uh, I don't know where it's going to land, you know, in, in the next 10 years, you know. <laughs> well, and that's, isn't that part of the magic? Isn't that part of what makes life so interesting? Is that... Right we don't know you know we can only we can only work with what we know right now and follow our instincts and follow our best you know guess about where where we where we need to go or where we need to land right now and um i think it is life life is a creative process in itself absolutely you know with every choice and and everything that we do and everything that we share and um and so i'm just like i'm i'm so like i i'm a little bit self-conscious about all of this but at the same time i'm like really honored and flattered that you would want to hear my story because i've been focusing on other people so no i am flattered that you were willing to let me do this um like you i i felt very self-conscious and i'm not the strongest public speaker but you know, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I am so fascinated by you, and the more I learn about you, the more I I respect you and adore you. So you know, thank you for your service and and sharing your story with all of us, and and being interested in us enough to hear ours. I mean, this is just a wonderful forum, and uh, you know, I look forward to hearing more of your your uh, podcasts as they continue. And I want to hear more from you, my dear, because I'm equally inspired and honored to have you on. And I love you and think you're fantastic and, and a great human being. So thank you, Jen Overly. Thank you for sending hearts. Heart, 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 heart. <laughs> and, um, and I can't wait to put this up and have people listen. It's going to be great. Okay. Thank you, Jen. Thank you so much. Ah, and that was Jennifer Jo Oberly's talk with me. Wow, whew, we went to some deep places. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, when we were talking about my mom and her passing, I was really feeling that. So one of Jen's gifts is that she holds space so brilliantly, which is why she's really good at what she does. And um, I wanna thank her so much for being on the show and for letting me tell my story. That was a lot of fun. And uh, we're going to finish off the episode today with her track, Destiny, that you may or may not have heard from her episode. I think it encapsulates everything that we talked about, and it's a wonderful track and worth more than worth hearing again. So here's Destiny from Jennifer Jo Oberly. Take good care of yourselves. Take good care of each other. 
And as always, I will see you on the other side. Ahead, come